You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center, and I'm joined by my sassy and yet silly co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Hey, at least we're all (laughs) sassy and silly. I know we are. I'm, I try to think of adjectives that'll kind of make you guys smile. So, so, so it works. So I'm glad that it made you smile a little bit. So what have you guys been up to lately? Oh, so I have learned uh, very sharply that I am no longer 25. Um, <laughs> and this is, this is very upsetting to me uh, because in my mind, I am, I mean, I'm older now. Maybe I'm 29, 28. Yeah. I think 28 is the age that I've kind of settled on. I got stuck at 32 and I haven't left 32. Yeah. I like, I'm 29 seems like a good age to me. And so yeah. I was at one of those trampoline bouncing places Ooh. and the lady offered me uh, one of those little special wristbands where you can go in. And I'm like, this is fabulous. And so I go in and I take off my shoes and I put on my grippy socks and I go, you know, flying off the edge onto this trampoline. And my leg gives out from underneath me. And of course, I'm flying around and the other human beings that are there are bouncing all around me. So I can't stand up. And I had knee surgery about 20 years ago. And so ever since I did that, I'm like, my knee is no longer stable. And as I was jumping up and down, I'm like, I can feel my spine compressing. I walked in (laughs) five, eight. I am, I have no doubts that I walked out at about five, four and a half. (laughs) <laughs> because I think my spine compressed that much. And so I am really, frankly, rather outraged at my weekend because I have been reminded that I am no longer actually 29. And I'm kind of pissed about it, really. So Carrie, this uh, is the reason why I do not snowboard or ski any longer. I go to winter destinations to shop. <laughs> uh-huh. Sit in a jacuzzi. I'm down with that. In the jacuzzi, drink wonderful beverages. Yeah. But it's yeah. okay. It's okay. So I'm guessing you never have seen those like like special edition reports where they do the undercover like, you know, videos in the trampoline center and somebody like whacks their head or, you know, like breaks their spine or their leg or something. I mean, my husband's an ICU doc. I don't need to watch TV to hear about those <laughs> outcomes. Like I know full well why we don't have a trampoline in our backyard and never will and why no one in our house will ever ride an ATV ever. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, You know, maybe, maybe with full body padding, a helmet and roll bars all around. But (laughs) even then that still leaves your arms open for detachment. And so like the the ICU part of our household, uh, I'm I'm aware of all those risks. I'm just dumb because I really wanted to bounce. So are you like a former gymnast? 
<laughs> or you just wanted to bounce? No, I just wanted to bounce. Like they look so fun. fun to me. Yeah, it does look fun. It's an it's a huge room full of trampolines, and they have dodgeball there, and they have basketball there, and you can as jump. Long in as long as the wrong part of your ba- body doesn't bounce and yeah. hit. <laughs> yeah, but um, turns out mold probably won't do that again, and it makes me a little sad. Well, you know, you can mark it off your bucket list now, so that's good. Yeah. Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt. Yeah, I didn't even get a t-shirt. <laughs> you definitely need to get a t-shirt, particularly if you, you never do it again. You, you, you need the t-shirt. You yeah. need the t-shirt for sure. <laughs> I got Rob. Well, very this, good. This so crap. Susan, do you have some questions for us today? I have some questions. Okay. My spouse and I have been trying to conceive for 18 months. I'm 31 and he is 30. Seven months ago, he got a semen analysis that showed low count in motility. After making lifestyle changes, including stopping smoking marijuana, his sperm count and motility have improved dramatically. Hmm. However, I am still not pregnant. I have done a fertility evaluation. I ovulate on my own. My uterus and tubes are cleared. My ovaries look good. Sorry, it was something misspelled. (laughs) My only abnormal lab was a low vitamin D. My AMH is 7.77. My REI, yeah, my REI suggested we try Clomid for three cycles with time sex. However, I've heard that Clomid with time sex is not any more effective for couples with unexplained reasons than natural cycles. Is Clomid with time sex a waste of time? Thanks. Very informed listener. Yay. I think it's like, oh, you stairs up the ladder. I mean, you know, it's not the most effective treatment by any means, but I think a lot of couples kind of need it to get their toes wet a little bit because just fertility treatment is pretty overwhelming. And we do say if you've tried for more than a year and you haven't been able to get pregnant on your own, you have about a one to 2% chance. If you're on some sort of oral medicine, we say about 5%. So yeah, it does bump up your chances. It's just not but if you're really ready to go future. on to something more advanced, go on to something go more advanced. It. Yeah. But I would like to say with an AMH of 7.77, mm-hmm. you may be having regular periods and you may be peeing on a stick and it shows a high LH, but you may not actually be ovulating all the time. So Susan, why no. do you say that though? Explain because, why, you, mean, why so you say that. People with a high AMH score tend to often have... Um, components of potentially polycystic ovarian syndrome, okay? One of those components being ovulating, not necessarily on a regular basis. And I see patients in my clinic that they're like, oh, I have periods every month and I pee on a stick and there's a high LH. And then when we go and I don't tend to use much Clomid, I use mostly letrozole, Mm -hmm. but we we do monitored cycles. So I know if you're recruiting a follicle and these are the people who, you know, they come back three, four days after they finish their letrozole and they have very little follicular development. And it's like, well, I should be ovulating. I'm like, there is nothing to be ovulating. We're going to keep on going. We're going to grow this follicle. We are going to get you to ovulate. And so it, it may be a component, even though we may not obviously see it as a component. So a high MH is great. It's great to have a high egg number. But what Susan's saying is it's highly correlated with somebody that doesn't have regular egg development each month, i.e. in a patient with something like polycystic ovary syndrome. So, and the other thing, I think I heard them mention saying we have unexplained infertility. I don't know that that's really the case because when when you have a low sperm count and low motility, yeah. even if it improves later, that sperm is now suspect. Like at right. it, it, it one point, it was low enough to strike everybody's attention. So I'm delighted that all the lifestyle changes improved because I will take every advantage I have, mm-hmm. but, and everyone that I can get, but knowing that it was low, 
short of something extraordinarily obvious, like the flu and high fevers, makes me think, and there's probably some sperm issue going on there too, even if it's not obvious. And the sperm were abnormal seven months ago. So it right. takes 72 it takes days to make new sperm. So you've really only had three months of good sperm exposure. And that's assuming that he quit all of the things right away and started mm-hmm. eating his veggies and wasn't smoking anything and uh, <laughs> was doing what his TV mom told him to do. <laughs> so what we're saying, we think you have a pretty good prognosis provided you're ovulating. And it's worthwhile to figure out if you're ovulating or not. Mm-hmm. If you want to do clomb in time intercourse, that's great. It'll increase your chances a little bit. But certainly if you want to be more aggressive, talk to your doctor and I'm sure they'd be fine with you being more aggressive. Yeah. yeah, like throw in some ultrasound monitoring, make sure the follicles are growing, maybe throw yep. in an IUI, make sure that the sperm is going where it needs to be, that kind of thing. Yeah, yep. good stuff. All right, let's do one more. Hi, I love turning into tuning into your podcast. I have found it so helpful in understanding my own journey through infertility. I am 33 with unexplained infertility. My first egg retrieval got 15 eggs, eight were mature, and only one embryo PGT normal. Transferred that one and was successful until nine weeks of pregnancy. The embryo had split into mono-mono twins and it was assumed oh. it was assumed the umbilical cords got tangled. What's the possibility of an embryo splitting again if both myself and my husband have identical twins running on both sides of the family? How can I get more mature eggs going into a second egg retrieval? My first egg retrieval, I stemmed for nine days. Gonal F-225 for nine days, Cetratide for four nights, um, Lupron trigger. Um, is it longer stems or more meds? True story. All of the above. <laughs> um, I would, I, I typically like going at least 10 days and oftentimes we'll go to 11 and 12. Now, granted, mm-hmm. it's a function of the follicles, but, um, but you can push to larger follicles. So you have that time to allow maturity. The second thing is she may be someone we're doing a, a dual trigger with at least a little bit of HCG is really mm-hmm. beneficial yes. because the hope is that if you got 15 eggs and eight were, eight were mature, if you do some of these other things, if you go through it again, you're going to bump up a little bit and then you'll have more eggs to, to play with. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think yes is the answer to longer meds, uh, longer stim and more meds. Um, I don't think you necessarily need more than the 225. Kind of depends on your baseline count. I think your AMH the, and all of those things and your absorption. Getting, getting, if you can get 15 out of 15, that's a whole lot better. And, yeah. you know, we don't want to drive your estradiol up too much higher because you're going to be at risk of hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, as to the part about the mono mono twins and identical twinning, really, I mean, what I learned was it's fraternal twins that are actually seen in families. Mm-hmm. And so identical twinning is something that it just happens. And realistically, if you look in most people's family trees and you look at how many, like how much infant mortality there was and, and things like that, there, there's a lot of families that have twins that may not even realize it if, if you did the digging. And so... I, I think it's one of those, yes, you've had it in your family, but you know, it's a 1% chance. And that 1%, it's a, a what, what I, I tell people is this is one of those real 1%. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's a lot of things that we're like, oh, it's less than 1% because it's point oh da 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 da, you know, that type of thing. Whereas identical twinning really happens about one out of every 100 cases. And so it is something we all see in our practices. And one percent is actually pretty darn common. But of all identical twins, I would say mono mono are probably the most uncommon. I mean, they're 
it's really unlikely to, for that to happen again. So, I, you know, it's hard to give you a percentage, but I think it's really, really unlikely. I never had a patient that's ever had two sets of mono-mono twins. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that it couldn't happen, but it's just not real likely to happen repeatedly. All right. Other All right. Questions? So today we're going to talk about uh, egg freezing and outcomes and number of eggs to freeze and lots of other questions that you may have if you're interested in doing that. So Carrie, you want to start us off and talk about um, who are candidates for egg freezing? So I'm going to get on a soapbox for like 30 seconds and say, I hate the phrase elective egg freezing because no, you will not die if you don't do it. But our social egg freezing, I hate that term. (laughs) Yeah, I hate that one too, because you don't do this as a social outing. You don't do this for kicks and giggles. You do it because it's prevention. And so I like medically preventive or preventive care type of egg freezing, like preventive freezing, that makes sense to me because yes, I know I should do this because of X, Y, Z that I want later in life. That makes sense to me. So the social and elective, I kind of think is crap. But um, anyway, the Abby, you asked me a question and now I was on my soapbox. What we're trying to say is we're mainly talking about egg freezing because you want to preserve your fertility and you are not being faced with something like cancer at this moment in time. Yes. Which are sort of the big two, two big reasons why people would freeze their eggs is either they're being faced with cancer or they want to freeze their eggs to preserve them for later on. And, you know, I've always thought, you know, I think tides have changed a little bit, but, you know, eight or 10 years ago, women really kind of got bashed for wanting to freeze their eggs, you know, like. Well, you just want to put off childbearing so you can work and be out in the community. And, you know, it was because I think women are smart and women realize we only have a limited time span to freeze our eggs. And I think the only other similar situation that I saw with men was during um, one of the Iraq wars about 20 years ago Mm -hmm. when all these men were getting all these like injections for everything and they were afraid they're going to be exposed to anthrax. We had tons of guys that came and froze their sperm in our clinic because they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to have children anymore. And so I think if, if you know, not to bash men at all, men are great. We all love our, our, our male friends and our male partners. But, you know, but I think if given that circumstance for men, I think many of them would do the exact same thing that we as women do and freeze eggs. So I think it's a great thing to freeze our eggs. So Susan, tell us a little bit about, you know, how people Oh, we got to get back list. to Carrie's soapbox. Oh, did we oh, finish that? I think we no, did. No, I'm off my soapbox. Oh, I said it was good candidates. Seconds. But our good, ca- I'll, I'll, ta- I'll take over good candidates since okay, we're on your good soapbox. Candidates. <laughs> I'm off my soapbox today. at least for a minute. Exactly. So good candidates. So the good candidate, I would say, is someone ideally in their mid-20s to usually mid-30s. However, we still freeze eggs for people who are beyond those years who we do ovarian reserve testing and it looks like we could get a reasonable number. The reason why we like to get people in for egg freezing kind of in that between 25 to 35 is that we can we get more eggs and it takes fewer eggs to yield a child. So the older you get, the more eggs we need to yield a child and we tend to get fewer eggs in each retrieval. So it's not that we can't do it. It just honestly is more cost-effective if we can do it earlier. And granted, life doesn't always end up the way that we expect and so that we completely understand that. But if you're sitting here listening to us and you're 27 and you're like, hmm, I'm thinking about freezing my eggs. Should I do it now or wait for 
five to seven years from now, the answer is now. Now. <laughs> now is always <laughs> because, better than later. Because you need you need fewer. And just because you freeze your eggs doesn't mean you're necessarily going to need to use them. This is your insurance policy for the future. And so do you guys think there's any difference in eggs that are frozen at 25 and or 40 versus how they thaw and how they progress when they're fertilized with sperm? Do you guys so, see big differences in that? I mean, there's, there is definitely a difference between eggs that are, are frozen at a younger age than an older age, just because the eggs are more competent. They have more of the internal structures that they need to go on. And the process of egg freezing is very different than the process of embryo freezing, just from a pure technological perspective. Because when you're freezing an embryo, you're freezing usually between 150 and 300 cells. And so if you lose a couple, so what? Mm -hmm. um, and when you are freezing an egg, you have one cell to freeze and the composition of that cell is different. There's a lot more fluid in there to surface area. And so as a result, it's a lot more susceptible to damage and the techniques more challenging than it is just to, to freeze a straight embryo. So when you add the, just some of the insults of age, like we were talking about earlier in my trampolines, um, they just, <laughs> that was they a just, good segue to what we're talking about, Carrie. <laughs> I totally planned that. Um, they just, they don't quite do as well. And we know that not every egg is going to successfully thaw, um, take in a sperm, grow to an embryo, because that's, that's just normal biology. You never expect 100% out of 100%. Um, but you are going to expect 25-year-old eggs to do better than your 40-year-old eggs. And part of that is just the normal physiology of 40-year-old eggs. So Susan, what really changed a few years ago that really makes it a much more common thing for people to freeze eggs successfully? So probably about, gosh, 10 to 15 years ago, it 2012. became... 2012. Okay, 10 years. 10 hey. years ago. Okay. 10 years I said ago. six or eight. You said 15 or 20. Somewhere yeah, 10 to 15. 10 years um, ago. So 10 years ago, egg freezing no longer became experimental. And so what happened was we essentially figured out good, efficient ways that we can freeze eggs and thaw the eggs so that they have good viability down the road. And so with that being said, you know, it, it really opened the door because before then you had to be under like research protocols and things like that to have your eggs frozen. And it was, it was much less available to the general public. Random factoid, part of the reason that egg freezing was uh, being driven forward was by the Italians because they can't freeze embryos. And so oh, they needed to figure out how to freeze eggs and do it oh. well to help their patients who needed fertility treatment. To make it and more efficient so they could come back and use those eggs later instead of doing another egg retrieval. You got it. Which is good for all of us. So the technique is called vitrification. So if you're in, I think most clinics do that now, but that's something that you may want to ask about because that's a big difference. Um, the other the other technical term that we use was slow freeze <laughs> and vitrification is known as fast freeze. And so the cell's about 90% fluid or 90% water. And so the nice thing about vitrification is almost instantaneously, the egg cell is frozen and it prevents um, damage, ice crystal formation in the organelles that really help the egg, you know, develop once it's thawed. So that was really, that was a really a big major change, I think, in, in you know, freezing eggs and, and success in freezing eggs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things to ask your clinic about is how long have they been freezing eggs and what's their success rate? Because... Like I said, anybody can freeze an embryo. Anybody can thaw an embryo. It is harder to do with eggs. And so um, places that have much more experience doing this, whether they're freezing for one of the egg banks or they've had a long existing in-house program, whatever it may be, 
um, that's worth asking because that's technically it's more challenging and and who you have in the lab matters for that one. I totally agree with that. I, I've had a number of cases of people who had actually frozen eggs previously at other places and then they came back to use those eggs and they weren't at places that had a lot of experience and we were now dealing with eggs here and now because we didn't have those eggs from before. Yeah. So Carrie, how does the process start? If somebody's interested in doing that, what the, what should they do first? So go see the REI. General OBGYN doesn't have this technology at their fingertips. And so we're going to order basic labs typically first. So all the general things, the infectious labs, your blood type, your CBC, whether or not you're anemic, that kind of thing. And we're going to look at the egg reserved labs and ultrasound. So this is typically a day three ultrasound to get your antral follicle count. And then we're also going to look What's at your antral follicle count. What's that? So this is the number of eggs that's available on your ovaries to be recruited in any given month. So a lot of people ask, well, if you freeze my eggs now, am I going to have any left to work with later? <laughs> and the answer is yes, you're going to have the same amount you otherwise would because that group of antral follicles that group is gone at the end of this month one way or the other, either because they're going to grow up and ovulate or be taken out like in an egg freezing cycle or because they're all going to die. Those eggs are not going to make it past the end of the month one way or the other. So when we're egg freezing, we recruit them all, we support them and we help them grow with the medication so we can get them all out. Um, and so we're just optimizing that one cycle rather than letting one ovulate and everybody else die. So, so Susan, oh, sorry, go ahead. The here. rest of the testing that we're going to do is the day three labs, your FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, your estradiol. And then we're also going to check an AMH as well, just to kind of get the lay of the land and see what we're working with. So we have a better idea of what to give you and how to counsel you with medications in the process. So Susan, a lot of our listeners on this episode may not be true infertility patients. So can you speak a little bit to kind of how patients are stimulated, how that kind of works and mm -hmm. monitoring and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I would say most of our patients are initially going to get on birth control pills for a few weeks to help the ovaries get in sync with each other. If you happen to already be on birth control pills or the ring or something like that, that's great. We can usually just kind of go from there. And then we'll have you come in for a baseline ultrasound and blood tests, make sure everything looks good to get started. And then you will start daily injectable medications. These are generally just under the skin injections. We teach them how to do, do them to yourselves. And I've done it myself and I'm a wimp, so I know you can do it. Um, <laughs> and you're going to do those injections for a period of usually 10 to 12 days, during which time frame you have blood tests and ultrasounds about every two to three days watching the follicles grow. When the follicles get to the right size, you'll get another medication that's going to help mature the eggs. And then usually somewhere around 35, 36 hours later, you're going to go in for your egg retrieval. Your egg retrieval is usually at an outpatient surgery center of some type. It may be at your doctor's office. It may be down the hall. It may be in an independent lab um, down the road. Um, but you'll undergo anesthesia. So you'll be asleep, but you're not going to feel anything. You're not going to remember anything, but you're breathing on your own. And we use an internal ultrasound this time with a needle on it to go from the vagina into the ovary. And in the ovary are those little fluid-filled follicles, the houses of the eggs. And we essentially suck up that fluid. And then in the fluid, our embryologists are then able to identify the eggs. The eggs that are mature are the ones that are generally cryopreserved or frozen. Um, an important thing to know is the day of egg retrieval, you do have to have a driver. So a lot of times I have 
ladies who come in, they don't want anybody to know. This is yeah. one thing you need to have your bestie. So yeah, absolutely. So Carrie, um, once the eggs are retrieved and they're in the IVF lab on the day of egg retrieval, what what's the embryologist looking for in those eggs? So the embryologist is going to identify that the eggs are there. It's, um, they're going to clean them off of all the, the cumulus cells, separate out the granulosa cells and, and isolate just the egg itself. And then they're going to really zoom in on it and they're going to decide, okay, is this GV an M1 or an M2? So GV stands for germinal vesicle. M1 is in meiosis 1, M2 is in meiosis 2. You want M2s. And the way that I think of this is you have toddlers, teenagers, and adults. Everybody (laughs) wants adults. They are useful. They are helpful. I'm making perhaps gross generalizations here, but let's run with it. Um, Toddlers, cute to look at, but absolutely of no use to anyone. And then teenagers, you know, could go either way. So teenagers that are the M1s, they have potential. And so what they're going to do is they're typically going to freeze for sure all the M2s and usually all the M1s as well. Because sometimes when you um, go get to the point of insemination, they will kick up and make an M2. And so we're, we're going to give them every opportunity to be a useful uh, contributing member of your family. So Carrie, the question I get almost every time that I do an egg retrieval on someone who's going to freeze eggs, just like was the case this morning, how many eggs should someone freeze? So the uh, kind of pain in the ass, the answer to that one is all of them. Uh, (laughs) That is kind of a pain in the ass answer. (laughs) The actual uh, relevant answer is um, it depends on what your age is, because like everything in fertility, age matters. And so there's been studies that have been done that have looked at the percentages that um, of people who need X number of eggs in order to get a baby. So for example, to have a 75% chance of conceiving using this set of eggs, if you have 10 at age 34, you've got that 75% chance of getting a baby out later. If you have 20 at age 37, you've got a 75% chance of getting a baby. At age 42, you need about 61 in order to have a 75% chance of a baby. And of course, the tricky thing about that is that the, that's a lot of egg retrievals. That's a, a lot, lot of egg retrievals. retrievals. I mean, even if you're 22 years old, that's still a couple of egg retrievals. And, yeah. and so it becomes far more out of reach. And those those statistics are very different for people who are doing um, medically required egg freezing for prior to cancer treatment or um, some of the other benign conditions where, oh my gosh, we got to get your eggs out now because of, you know, you're going to go through a bone marrow transplant because you have sickle cell anemia or things like that. But um but yeah, those numbers change pretty dramatically. And so I always tell people when we're going to get these numbers, number one, it's very important as to how many kids you think you might want one day. Because if you want a lot, we got to get more out. And secondarily, I always treat this as though when we go back to get those eggs, that there's going to be none to get. Like I assume that the 34-year-old who comes to see me, that she's not going to come back and use these until she's 47 and a half. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood of me getting any good eggs at age 47 and a half is almost nil. And so I always talk to people about, okay, my recommendation is almost always going to be do as many of these as you can to ensure the outcome as you want. And you have to factor in the logistics of the time and the money and the emotional and life impact that it has. But um, but you really kind of want to get as many as you can. But I would say at least 10 to 12 for one, one small human being if you're under the age of 35. 
So Susan, what's the reason why you need so many eggs? Because I think a lot of people think that if you've got an egg, you've got a baby from that. So what's what's the deal with that? Why is there such attrition with eggs? Yeah. So attrition was just the word I was thinking of. And, and essentially what happens is, say you have a number of eggs and we're going to, they've been frozen and we are going to warm those eggs. Well, not all of the eggs are going to survive that freeze and thaw process. So you're going to lose a few. And then we're going to inseminate them. Well, not all eggs that are inseminated are actually going to fertilize. And then you have embryos. And those embryos from day one to day five, six, or seven, you're probably going to get about a third at the end of that process. And those are the ones that can actually be tested to see if they're chromosomally normal or transferred into your uterus. And so embryos go through a major metabolic stress uh, around day two and again on day four. And so uh, after each of those kind of stressful events, we're going to have loss. So it's you're, 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 getting, you're going down a funnel and it's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. So you can start off with 10 and end up like one. I think we had a question like that earlier. You know, I had 10 eggs and I ended up with one embryo. And, and that's, that's actually very common. You know, oftentimes people will come in and they're like, oh, I'm thinking about doing IVF, but I don't want to have 10 embryos. And I mean, we all have patients who do get 10 embryos. Okay. It occasionally happens. But that's a good but problem to have usually. <laughs> it, it is usually a good problem to have. And the reality is for almost everybody, when you go through an egg retrieval, even if you're not egg freezing, we're hoping to get between one to three chromosomally normal embryos. And mm-hmm. that's a very normal outcome. And, yeah. and so, you know, the ideas of having, you know, I have 10 eggs and I'm going to have 10 babies. That's, that's just not the reality of human mm-hmm. reproduction. So Carrie, the second most common question I get is how long can my eggs be frozen? So at this point, there is no known best buy date. And there <laughs> is no used by. <laughs> there is no uh, freeze or burn that happens to eggs. And so when you look at, and granted the data is better for embryos in this case, but there was a, a case that came out of Texas. I think it was Baylor, maybe. Susan, you might know about so. this. There was an embryo that was in storage for 24 years before it was taken out and made into a human being who is now just fine and presumably driving her parents crazy. It was a donor embryo, wasn't it? Actually, Knoxville, Tennessee, I believe is where it was. Jeff Keenan in Knoxville, Tennessee, it was a report on the national news. He actually thawed a 24-year-old embryo and put it in a 25-year-old woman and she got pregnant with it. Mm-hmm. We actually look back at our numbers and these were embryos that were frozen um, for 14 years with a different technique. And we we had a person that got pregnant with a 14-year-old embryo. It was the longest we could find in our practice. But important things to also know is oftentimes clinics do have um, limits as to the maximum age a woman can be for a transfer. And those mm-hmm. those limits are pretty generous. I mean, ours is you have to have your final embryo transfer by your 56th birthday. What do y'all have limits at your clinics? Ours is by 50, but we every now and then we'll go above that. But usually you have to be in the middle of the process right around 50 or just before. Ours is 52. And then if you're using a surrogate, 55. Okay. So, you know, yeah. it's just something to be aware of, especially if you're starting to create eggs and you're wanting to delay things for quite a while, it's just something to think of. 
So Susan, I have a patient who's going to freeze eggs in a few weeks and she has a genetic abnormality that she's aware of. Can her eggs be tested for that genetic abnormality? So her eggs can't with our current technology. However, her embryos can. And so what's actually probably more efficacious is that if she ends up with a male partner or ends up using donor sperm, either that donor or that partner needs to be tested for that carrier status. Mm-hmm. And um, if they're a match, then they can definitely test the embryos um, to see if they have any embryos that are at risk of having the disease state. And if your patient has an autosomal uh, dominant condition, meaning she has a 50-50 shot of passing that gene on to every single one of her uh, small human beings, then you probably want to take that into consideration when you're freezing eggs as well and know, okay, I'm going to need at least twice the number to have a shot in an unaffected embryo because Mm -hmm. um, those statistics change when you know you're going to be throwing out at least half the embryos because of some significant condition. Not that they get thrown out, but, um, but you know that you're not likely to transfer them for that reason. Well, very good. Um, any other things we should cover that we haven't covered with this topic? I think we hit all the the big stuff. I, I would like to say that egg freezing isn't probably as expensive as a lot of people think it is. Um, you know, and so if you're thinking about it and you're and if dollar signs are the reason why you're thinking of not doing it, go and talk to a reproductive endocrinologist and find out how much it costs at their clinic. Um, because I, like I said, I mean, it, it's it's not quite as expensive as you think it is. When you do the full IVF cycle and you're inseminating and growing them out in the lab and everything like that, that tends to add on quite a bit of cost. And so the egg freezing process does tend to be more affordable. So don't don't use the fear of what that dollar amount as a reason not to go ask questions. Yeah, or just talk to your HR person at work and say, hey, is this covered? Because I've had several patients that have really good coverage for egg freezing and they didn't, didn't even know they had it mm-hmm. until they asked the question. So it's definitely worth, worth asking the question for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more. Also, be sure and subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So be sure to follow and subscribe and stay updated on all things about infertility. You can also visit FertilityDocsUncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will answer on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love to hear episode ideas as well. So we want to know what you want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.